Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna. And I'm James Gill. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. In this episode, National Centre for Writing's Kate Griffin talks to writer, translator and editor Rabi Thapa. Kate is our Associate Head of Programmes and Rabi stayed in the Dragon Hall Cottage as part of our Visible Communities programme. Rabi is a British-born Nepali writer and translator. He's also the editor of Le Lit, the literary magazine from Nepal, and the author of Nothing to Declare and Tamil, Dark Star of Kathmandu. From 2010 to 2011, he was the editor of the weekly paper, Nepali Times. Kate and Rabi discuss a number of topics, including his background, spending the first six years of his life in Plymouth, his relationship to the UK and Nepal, the Kathmandu literary scene, bridge languages, and the 123 languages used in Nepal. Amazing, 123 <laughs> languages. And so we bring you Kate and Rabi. Hello, Rabi. Thank you for joining us on the, the podcast. Um, you're in residence with us this week at Dragon Hall in the in the cottage. The fir- um, and this is the first time in a long time we've been able to record a podcast in person. So it's a great pleasure to be sitting here talking to you. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great to be in Norwich. I wanted to talk to you really about your relationship, your writing and translating and your relationship between the UK and Nepal. As you describe yourself as a British, uh, a British Nepali writer, translator, and editor. So I really wanted to explore all those intersections. Um, could you start by just telling us a little bit about your background? You were born in the UK, but you grew up in Nepal. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in born in Plymouth. Never been back, for no particular reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I was here for the first six years of my life, and then you know, my parents and myself moved back to to Nepal, where I grew up. Uh, did all my schooling there and only came back here for university much later on. And yeah, since then I've been, for the last 15 or 20 years, I've been back and forth, back and forth. And yeah, in the last three years or so, I've moved back more or less permanently, uh, been, based in, been based in London. And yeah, so uh, it's uh, what you said about identifying as British Nepali is also not without complications because yes. for the longest time I've thought of myself exclusively as as Nepali but I mean these things keep on keep on changing wherever you move to I mean when I first went to university moved from Nepal to university first to Australia which is where I did my did my degree it was the first time I had ever been considered an Asian uh, and it was it was you know this vast identity that I was suddenly being suddenly being let loose into a field of Asians, as it were. And I never thought of myself as being anything but Nepali. Mm. Uh, came back to Nepal, then I came, came back to the UK, and, and lo and behold, now I'm, now I'm British. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a bit complicated, and obviously languages have a lot to do, have a lot to do with that. And uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Nepal uh, in you know, speaking Nepali colloquially, and with my family, but studying in English in an English medium school where, uh, and the first of these schools, in English medium schools, I should say, the first of these schools actively discouraged us from speaking in Nepali. In fact, they had something, it was run by American Jesuits, uh, and they used to have something called a donkey stick. So if you spoke, if you were heard speaking Nepali 
you know, which would which would have been the mother tongue of most of the kids there, and you would your name would be written on the donkey stick, and you would have to hold it until you heard somebody else speaking Nepali, and you would snitch on them, write their name on it, and give it to them and pass it around. And at the end of the week, you know, you you would get you know demerits against your name, and you would be punished accordingly. And in that particular school, it meant corporal punishment. Uh, and yeah, the, so the second school I went to was it, it wasn't quite as uh, as draconian as that, but still it was it, it was it was always in, we were always encouraged, despite you know having Nepali as a mother tongue to to, to speak in English, which uh, I did. I read in English. The library was full of uh, Western English language literature, and so that that kind of determined where I went. My first forays into into literature were were in English. And who were your influences? Who were you reading then? Well, as a as a child, it would have been you know just things like Enid Blyton and Swallows and Amazons, you know, and Stephen King. A lot of Stephen King was going around at the time, was being passed around at the time. So just you know nothing very different, I imagine, from what what kids here would have been reading at the time. And so this notion of reading in in Nepali only is something I had to circle back to. Very consciously, because I felt a responsibility as I became more and more involved in literature based in Kathmandu, I felt that I really was missing out by not, by not reading, by not having read uh, uh, the kind of literature, the, the canonical Nepali literature that, you know, contemporary my contemporaries who had studied in Nepali medium schools would have grown up reading. So I'm kind of circling back to try and catch up with part of my heritage, as it were. And when did you start writing? You were just talking about becoming more involved in the Kathmandu literary scene. So uh, I never, cons- I never considered it. Pro- probably like a lot of people, never considered writing or literature to be uh, a feasible profession when I was a kid. I wanted to be a, a doctor, just like my dad. Uh, but I always, you know, I always wrote for school magazines and things. It was something I was always interested in. People always gave me their stuff to edit. So I was an editor, editor before I was a writer, even when I was in high school. Uh, yeah, it was much. It was much later. It was much later when I, you know, uh, thankfully dropped the idea of becoming a doctor, started you know, studying environmental science, human geography, and I studied uh, English literature at the same time because I couldn't decide whether I wanted to go towards the humanities or towards science. So I, I kind of tried to grab grab both streams along and advance and it was only much later that I realized that this was something I could I could do regularly whether I was an editor or or a writer uh, and trying trying to combine editing and writing do more creative things you know I was very interested in reading obviously and uh, yeah it just it was, it was not a conscious decision to say I'm going to do this now it was more probably like a lot of people you'd be You'd be doing. I would be writing uh, or, or or editing reports on international development and the like. And in my spare time, I would be thinking, well, maybe I'll write a write a story, see how it goes. And then you write another story and write another. And and you know, in a, in a few months or a year, you have a collection and you consider publishing it. So that's really how it came about. It wasn't a conscious thing, and it's still it's it's still the case that you know. Writing, editing, and translating is not my whole 
at least literature is not my whole livelihood. It's something I do, I do on the side as much as I can. And has your writing in English been published? So I, I've published uh, from uh, Indian publishers. So Penguin India published my, my first short story collection about 10 years ago. And uh, then I published a, a non-fiction book on a particular area of uh, Kathmandu. You've been to Kathmandu, so you'll probably know when I say Tamil, you'll probably mm. recall the, the, the tourist district. So I wrote a, I, I wrote a short history of that, uh, of that neighborhood. And that was published about six years ago again. But uh, yeah, I mean, since I run a magazine called Lalit in, from Kathmandu, uh, over the, I've done that over the last decade. You know, that's given me the opportunity to edit, edit a write, and write a lot around that in English. Could you tell us a little bit more about Lalit, um, why you set it up? and Sure, yeah. So, it's available as a print journal and online. That's right, that's right. So uh, Lalit came about because uh, a few of us were interested in writing and editing literature. Uh, we used to hang out together. We wanted to set up a literary festival because uh, I, think, I think we had probably been to the Jaipur Literary Festival a couple of times and we were inspired uh, to do something on a much smaller scale but similar in, in Kathmandu because Kathmandu didn't have, uh, you know, a, a, didn't have a literary festival of that kind at all at the time. And this was back in 2011, so we set up something called the Kathmandu Literary Jatra. Jatra literally means uh, festival or procession. So we held that one. Uh, we had people like William Dallenbrook come over from Delhi. Uh, it was great. We had a great time. Uh, alas, it was not to continue because we had some, some major disagreements with the people supposed to be raising, raising the money for it the, the following year. So we had to cancel it at the last minute, which was a source of extreme frustration for everybody involved, as you can imagine. Uh, so we decided to kind of channel those energies into, into a magazine, which originally we had thought of as being the festival guide. So we decided that we would just run run a literary a literary journal because again, even though there is a decent tradition of literary journals in Nepali in Nepal, uh, there was no tradition of uh, other than the occasional compilation of literature. There was there was nothing in English, so we thought it would be a good idea to set up something, make a you know create a platform for uh, Nepali language writers being translated into English. Nepalese writing in English, uh, prose, poetry, photo stories, you know, graphic stories, whatever we could get hold of, uh, and, and, and put, this onto, put this onto a platform, uh, mostly online, but uh, the, the original plan was to, ha was to have a twice a year, a biannual uh, print magazine. So we've somewhat slowed down in the last in, in, in the last few years, just because everybody's most most of the people who are involved on the most of the editors are are doing their own creative things as well. Everybody's earning a living as well, and it, you know, funding is very hard to come by, as as you as you might imagine. So, but but we we yeah. So uh, we're coming out with our tenth tenth issue, uh, print issue, uh, hopefully this this autumn. And it will be available uh, to 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 buy as, as as a print edition, but we we regularly come out with stuff online. Uh, the website is lalitmag. That's l a l i t m a g dot com. So that's that's Lalit. It's it's a, it's kind of like a, we have a floating pool of editors 
all scattered now. I mean, you know, our poetry editor is in is in Spain. I'm here. Uh, there's a couple of people in London. Uh, sorry, in in uh, Kathmandu and other places. And we come together every now and then. You know, I kind of crack the whip, and people do not <laughs> fall into line. But we eventually get there. Yeah, it must be a challenge sustaining the magazine over so many years. It's been very challenging. It's been very challenging. I mean, whenever it comes out, whenever we actually hold a copy of the of the print edition out, you're you're thrilled, and then it slowly dissipates over time, and then you feel that you should be doing more, but you just don't have the time because you know life goes on, and you you have to take care of everything else with it. You told me earlier that there are over a hundred languages in Nepal. Um, what is the translation scene like in Nepal, and how has Lalit been involved in that? The translation scene for the I looked it up the 123 languages is is pitiful. We, I mean, we've always said that we would trans that that we would translate uh, from any language. In reality, it's one thing to find somebody who can translate uh, from the dominant language of Nepali into English, because uh, most of us are, most of us working with Lalit are Anglophone. It's quite another to imagine that you can translate from a minority language beyond Nepali. I mean, Nepali is spoken by, spoken as a mother tongue by about, by less than half of the people in Nepal. So less than half of 30 million peoples. And, uh, you know, the rest of the language are kind of, you know, there's people who, there's, languages with a few few million speakers, there's languages with, you know, less than ten speakers, languages that are critically endangered. So it's it's almost impossible to find people who speak these languages, some of which are only an oral tradition, and who are then going to be able to translate that into into English. Uh, so yeah, Lalit has been doing, had always been doing bits and pieces of translations whenever you know translators became available. You know, somebody sent something in, or we commissioned something. Uh, in 2017, for our eighth issue, we we wanted to do a translation issue. So we asked uh, one of our better known writers, Manjushri Thapa, who's based in Canada now, to guest to be the guest editor for a translations from the margins issue of Lalit. And uh, the, the, the first line of her editorial was, this is not an issue of transitions from the margins in reality, even though you know, that's what we're calling it because of these problems. Uh, so a lot of the stuff in there is, you know, uh, uses Nepali as a, as a bridge language. So it would have already have been translated into Nepali. Uh, and then we're doing the translation, translating into, into English. Uh, having said that, there are a few things which have been directly, a few languages which have been directly translated into into English. So there were some new things in there, but by the margins we also meant not just uh, minority languages, but also minority peoples and minority issues. Uh, so you know, people people from lower castes, people uh, women, marginalized women, farmers, their experiences, experiences of of pastoralists. So all kinds of things came into this came into this issue. And the idea always was that you know it would not be kind of like uh, you know any give any specific translation. It's not going to be the definitive version. What we did for translations for the margins for that issue was not it was not intended to be you know this great thing that we've that you know would set the marker. It was just an attempt to bring together whatever resources we had we had to do as many languages and as many voices as we could in that particular time. We haven't been able to do a follow-up since. 
but yeah, hopefully it'll happen. It'll continue to happen into the future. I'm interested in your use of Nepali as a bridge language for translation, because that also happens a lot with English. Um, I wondered whether when you're translating um, a text that's been translated into Nepali and you're translating it on into English, whether there was the opportunity to, for the translator, the second translator to have a dialogue either with the first translator or with the author themselves. Was that possible to arrange for any of the translations? For this particular issue, I think there were, there were several instances where uh, the, the, the second translator would have been able to communicate with the, with the original person, with the original writer or speaker, uh, but generally, generally no. I mean, there was even a case where, uh, where, where we were recommended uh, some work by a Maithili poet. So Maithili being a regional, a regional language, I would call it, it's spoken by probably 5% of Nepal's population, maybe a bit more, which is quite a lot, but it has a much, big, much bigger uh, community in the, you know, across the border with India, much bigger than Nepali, in fact. Uh, but uh, and we had a uh, we had somebody one of our editors at the time, Smithy Ravindra, was uh, she 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 spoke Maithili as as a mother tongue, but she was more comfortable translating uh, a version of of that particular uh, poem from Nepali into English. So even somebody who would, who would claim claim it as a mother tongue and who you would think would be okay to translate it directly into into English felt more comfortable uh, translating it direct, translating it from the bridge of Nepali. I can't quite say why, but I mean it just goes to show that that it, it's certainly not straightforward. You know, I mean because it's it's likely that uh, the second translator in this case had been educated in Nepali and English, so even though she spoke Maithili, the the, the first language with her mother probably at home. She still, when it came to more literary, uh, a literary use of the language, she felt more comfortable doing it from Nepali into English. And this, ha I mean, this and this happens. Uh, this happened across in in different ways across many of the other languages we tried to we tried to tackle. So it's yeah, it's fraught. It's 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 very problematic. Uh, I. D I I don't think there's any right way to go about doing things. I think it really, I mean, you can, you can have principles in the, way, in, in, in the way you set out to do things, but in reality, you really have to work with the resources and the time that you, that you have. Uh, if, you, if you don't know somebody who can, who's available at that given moment to translate it from one language to another, you have to, you have to, you have to find somebody else who can maybe use the bridge language to do it. Uh, I, w I was actually reading through one of your issues of in other words and uh, there was a statement there that was that was quoted in which the writer says if uh, a person from a non-oppressed community is translating uh, something from something written by by somebody from an oppressed community and if that if the translator makes a mistake it's a grave sin because you're contributing to the to the oppression to the further oppression which, uh, which I thought was a bit harsh, you know, because it, it, I mean, of course you try not to make mistakes. Nobody does that on purpose, but mistakes do happen. You know, sim yes. what a, how, however well-intentioned you are. So, 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 I mean, if you were, if you were, if you were, if you were too fearful to, 
to make mistakes you, you wouldn't translate at all probably you'd, you'd be you know you just sit there reading your reading your english that's very true um is there much support for translation in nepal in terms of funding or training or institutional support in any way no there isn't uh, uh there's there has been some support from the royal from what well, what used to be the royal nepal academy which is now the nepal academy for literature which trans they 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 used to, i don't know what the current status is but they used to trans they used to support translations into nepali of world literature so uh you know translations of shakespeare or you know french literature whatever is considered worthy by whoever whoever's in the academy at the time so it could be quite random uh so yeah nepali writers would 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 be commissioned to translate probably from english if it's you know french literature into into nepali so that there is a tradition of that uh and you know th- these publications are are in the market uh for the kind of translations that translations that we have been doing from nepali into english there's zero support i would say mm. you know every now and again you might be able to convince one embassy or the other so uh, i think in the past we in, in the last few years we we got some support from the norwegian embassy i hope i've got it right from the norwegian embassy to to support uh the translation of a collection of uh, oral oral histories of uh, lgbt the lgbt community in nepal so they they supported uh, the publication of this kind of a booklet really uh, quite short called pride climbing higher so this was you know, that kind of support for for very you know discrete projects uh the polish embassy also gave us a little bit of funding to to uh translate i think a, a few passages of uh, kapuscinski's kapuscinski's uh one of one of his books i can't recall which one so it's very it's very piecemeal there's no grand strategy on on the part of anybody to 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 support this kind of thing so yeah i mean lalit exists solely through our efforts uh, unpaid volunteer efforts and and whatever you know piecemeal funding we can raise so yeah and that, so, so so that's pretty much the the extent of it and certainly there's no support for for translations from from other languages other than nepali there'll at least be some institutional approval of the kind of work we'll be doing but if i say i want to translate you know something from tamang or maithili or any of these 120 122 other languages they would they would probably uh, government would probably just say why you know why, why bother everybody's learning english in nepali now anyway so it doesn't really build it doesn't really contribute to the nation nation building project this might change however because uh, nepal is now a federal republic which means that uh, and it's it's a part ethnic federal uh, re- republic which means that while some of the some of the provinces are uh, purely geographical others are not they're they're based on uh, who claims it as a homeland and these are these are things that are still being worked out uh, some of the provinces don't even have names yet because it's because several ethnicities claim them uh in some cases the ethnicities don't even live there anymore because they've all moved to Kathmandu or they've all gone abroad but it's the homeland so presumably once things are a bit more sorted out language policies will come into play literature policies will come into play and maybe there'll be some funding 
from these uh, within these provinces for translations from from these languages that have been hitherto neglected. So yeah, things will things will change, and and the the the, the hegemony of Nepali will probably be fragmented somewhat, but there's a lot of resistance uh, against uh, doing that because it's the, there's this sense that you know Nepal is there's this uh, I guess you could you could call it propaganda from the times of the the monarchy, which we which was only dissolved in you know 2006. This sense that Nepali is the unifying language, and the hill culture that goes with Nepali is the unifying is is what unites these 123 languages and these dozens of ethnicities and if you take that away then everything falls apart into little principalities the way it was before the king the kings came along and saved nepal then i mean there's there's a strong you know sense that amongst many people uh, that, that that you know nepali should continue to represent what it is to be a nepali and with uh, lalit who is your audience who is your readership is it an a readership, are you aiming at a readership within Nepal or are you looking beyond your borders as well? Well, with the online thing, it's, uh, it's sometimes hard to tell. I mean, beyond Google Analytics and all that, it's sometimes hard to tell who your audience really is. Whether it's, uh, you know, when you, you know, if you look at a map of who's, who's accessing the site, you know, if you see Canada or Australia being lit up, does that mean that Canadians and Australians uh, are, are reading Lalit? Great. Does that mean that uh, you know it's Nepali Canadians, Canadian Nepalis, or you know uh, reading Lalit? Also great, but in a different way. So it's hard to really uh, it's hard to really fix fixate on a particular on a particular audience. Certainly, right. Certainly, publishing most of our stuff in English means that we're reaching out to more of an English language audience, Anglophone audience, whether they're Nepali or anything else. We also used to publish in Nepali. Uh, we used to have it used to be kind of half and half, or you know, a third Nepali and two thirds English. But that that became really difficult for for the editors more than anything else to manage logistically, linguistically. It was just it, it was just crazy. So we we're now more or less exclusively, certainly in the print, uh, publishing in English, which helps us reach international audiences. But it also means that uh, you know there are times when people, well, I mean, we'll be just like uh, Nepali writers in English, in, in English in general are often seen as being based in Kathmandu, you know, elites reaching out to Western audiences, not really in touch with grassroots uh, issues uh, you know there have been uh, times when people have said well Lalit is just you know it's only distributed in Kathmandu it's only read by a few people uh, in, in Kathmandu by you know higher class Nepalese and expats and and that it doesn't really reach uh, into the into the hinterland as it were there is some truth to that but uh, I mean you choose the language you go with the consequences I'm interested in your journey, your journey to translation, because you've moved from editing translations to translating yourself. Could you tell us a bit about that, how that came about? Yeah, so I guess I could call myself a bit of an accidental translator. I mean, I, I certainly never thought of myself who would, uh, who would do translation full-time. I'm not doing it full-time now. But uh, yeah, it's uh, working with Lalit particularly since we were 
dedicated to publishing at least a few translations every issue. And I was, um, I was the end point of it as the editor. I was looking you know, more and more closely at these translations. Sometimes they were great, sometimes they, were, they weren't so great, so they would need a bit of editing. And obviously, as I, sp as, I, as I speak and write Nepali, it made sense for me to go back to the originals to see if there was a, you know, something I could help, help out with. So, yeah, it, it was... And, uh, I mean, there were even... Uh, there were texts where several of us were, you know, writing and rewriting at the same time, several of the editors, and disagreeing about certain things. So, you know, eventually I decided I, I would translate, I would try my hand at translating translating a story. Uh, I think the first one I translated was for volume eight and it was uh, it was a Nepali language story written by some written by a short story writer who whose mother tongue was Hindi but uh, you know lived in Nepal is Nepali. So I translated that into English and I was quite pleased with the results if I may say so myself. And uh, it's one of those things, I mean, the, the translations are often nightmares to get on with, but when you, once you're done with them, more or less, you, you, feel, you feel quite happy with what, with what you've done, if you've, if you've managed to do it uh, reasonably. So, yeah, one thing, one story led to another. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I translated a few, other th a few other articles that had been published as columns about specific uh, issues of oppression and marginalization. And... Uh, this opportunity came up to to work uh, to apply for a residency at the National Center for Writing, and what I'm doing now is 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 a, is not very is not a very big project, but it's the biggest transition project I've undertaken so far. So it's something that I that uh, translation is is definitely something that when I have the time for it, I'll I'll be very interested in in pursuing. I mean, I kind of see it as, I think I was saying earlier that it's, in my mind, it's somewhere, it lies somewhere, somewhere on the spectrum between, between writing, writing and editing. You're kind of engaging, you're not creating the text yourself, but you are kind of trans-creating in a way. Uh, and you're not, you're not just picking away at individual words on the other end of, you know, at the finished product. So you, it's somewhere in between. It, it carries its own joys and, and sorrows. And the, could you tell us about the project that you're working on um, while you're in residence? Right, so I'm translating a, 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 a I'm not sure what, what to call it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a series of a series of letters, fictional letters uh, by a Nepali writer called uh, Parijat. Her pen name was Parijat. Her real name was Bishnu Kumari Waiba uh, from the Tamang community. But she didn't write in Tamang, she wrote in, in Nepali. And uh, so she wrote from the 1960s to, to I guess, the late 1980s. Uh, she passed away in 1993. So she was a singular kind of writer because uh, she wrote in a very, in, within a tradition that, a Nepali language tradition that was very dominated by, by men, uh, uh, very dominated by male, male Brahmins, particularly. Uh, and she she was a socialist. She was a feminist. She was you know a reformist in general. She was also uh, ill for most of her life. She was I think partly she, she was she, she was partly paralyzed. So she was mostly uh, you know confined to confined to her house. Uh, 
and she produced a number of novellas, poetry, essays, and the like, over over a long career. And uh, in her lifetime, she was she was revered for for what she wrote. Uh, one book in particular called Sirish uh, Kupul, which means uh, the flowers of this. Uh, I think it's mimosa uh, flowers, which is uh, and it's a it's a novella about uh, a returning returning uh, Gorkha soldier, returning from the Malayan wars, who's you know filled with regret at the things he's done during during the time of the war, and he kind of gets a new lease on life when he meets this mysterious woman in this mysterious house, and he begins to fantasize about her. So you know nothing very strange there, <laughs> but. Uh, the 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 protagonist himself is you know kind of complex uh, you know a ma- a Nepali male reflecting on you know the sexual crimes he may have committed it's never made clear exactly what they are during the wars and uh, falling for this uh, chain smoking pale pallid woman who's you know not really responding to him at all uh, so, so it's 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 an odd kind of book but it's somehow struck a chord with it's this existential kind of slice of life from, from, from Nepal from the 1960s and it's, it's become a kind of a, uh, yeah, it's, and it's a very good novella, but it's received uh, extraordinary attention uh, at, at the expense of all her, all her other work. So Parijat's other work is, is not very well known at all and it certainly hasn't been translated. Uh, Shirish Kupul has been translated. So I thought it would be an interesting challenge to take up something completely different from Parijat uh, and kind of give it back to a new generation of uh, Nepali, young Nepalis who uh, probably only read English now because of their English medium schools. I mean, the issues of uh, an English language education and English language reading being considered superior to a Nepali language, Nepali language uh, education are, are far more severe now than they were when I was growing up in Nepal. So this uh, particular uh, series of letters uh, is addressed to a fictional, fictional character called Boni. Uh, and the, na- the narrator is, is observing Boni grow up uh, from you know, the age of, age of 12 to... Uh, to, to uh, her death, basically, and uh, disapproving of almost everything she does because she is not growing up into a socially aware, hardworking, you know, uh, person who who matches who matches the narrator's ideals. She's uh, turning t- turning into this vain, you know, consumerist, uh, you know, teenager, and uh, and the narrator is simply not very happy about how things are turning out. So so the letters there's about half a dozen short letters uh, to, are addressed to uh, Boni and they're basically lecturing, lecturing her about her life and what's important. Uh, and it's, it's quite didactic, but it also has a certain charm. I mean, it's, uh, it, it also makes some very profound points about, uh, about uh, how one should see oneself within society, what's important, what kinds of friends are important to make and uh, what one should dedicate one's, one's life to and what one shouldn't waste one's time on. And it provides a kind of a, a snapshot of uh, Parijat's own thinking, I suppose, 
and the kinds of things that that that, that were going on in, in in Nepal in the in the 1980s, which would have been a time of kind of lassitude, under uh, it was rather a stagnant time for Nepal because the monarchy was in full flow. Uh, there were lots of revolution revolutionary mov- movements, underground revolutionary movements that hadn't really hadn't really uh, come to come to life. And it was, uh, but there was a great, there was a sense that something, something was going to give, but there wasn't much on the face of it. There wasn't much going on. Uh, you know, consumer culture was just coming in. TV was just coming in. Films, you know, Hindi films. Uh, so I mean, teenagers were just kind of growing up into this new awareness of the of the of the outside world and and and, and what it had to offer to them. So people were being distracted from their from their traditional families. So Parijat was obviously very concerned about the direction which Nepali youth was going. So this this is a kind of a, uh, I guess, a message for for the, for Nepali youth of the time to not uh, deviate from what they really should be doing. So that's the yeah, so, so that's what it is. It's 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 not very long. It's only about twelve thousand words. Uh, so that's what what I'm what I'm working on this week in particular. And you've been working with Mina Kandasamy as your mentor for this project. Yes. Um, what did you discuss with her when you were talking about the translation? What particular challenges did she help you with? Yeah, so that was quite interesting because we um, we had a conversation today, uh, and uh, she she really pointed out some areas uh, that that I could perhaps work on the text to to bring it more towards, I guess, a more modern, a more Western. English language audience. Uh, so, so, so there are uh, a number of places in the text where, I mean, other than obvious, you know, specific cultural references uh, that only a Nepali would understand, or only a South Asian might, might 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 get a sense of. There are obvious places where you know one would gloss the text a bit and you know explain, take some license to explain things uh, to somebody who might not be familiar with. Uh, certain kinds with, with with certain parts of the Nepali culture. So those things uh, are things that she pointed out. Other other things would other things would relate to. I mean, I, one one of my questions to her was how does one how does one bring this uh, how does one translate this uh, sense of this sense within within the narration within the letters that socialism is something that is still relevant to a modern reader parijat is very direct about it she speaks about uh, she exhorts uh, the girl in question to return to the land to link her on link her hands with her brothers and sisters from the villages to you know see to to kind of identify with people who sweat for a living and to not be, you know, obsessed with film magazines and the glossies and things like that, and um, things like makeup, uh, God forbid. So, but I was finding as I was translating this that it, it just seemed seemed a bit dated to me. And in fact, uh, Mina did say, "Well, she she's certainly a feminist, but she's a very patriarchal feminist," is what she is what she said, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, so Mina was kind of trying to trying to say that well, I mean, you you obviously can't change what she's written completely, but what you could do is maybe gloss it a little, maybe even uh, provide a separate translator's note which situates uh, the, the 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 specific context within which uh, socialism 
has come into Nepal and South Asia and, and still remains there to, 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 a, to a large extent. I mean, students in Nepal are a lot more, I mean, your average student is much more likely, the college student is much more likely to be conversant with, 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 with socialism than your average uh, student in the West, I would imagine. So there's a lot more sympathy for, for these themes. And I mean, there is the, 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 the results of that are plain to see. I mean, we had, a, we had a very belated Maoist revolution. I mean, not belated for Nepal necessarily, but in global terms uh, from 1996 to 2005, which resulted in 2008 uh, with the victory with uh, the first elected Maoists probably in the world, majority government. Uh, so things came to Nepal, socialism came to Nepal from, from very different roots in very different times. And uh, Parijat's writings, at least those, those writings uh, speak from that time. So it's, while I may not be able to you know, trans, I may not want to trans, transform the text to, to explain uh, to readers what this means. And certainly a separate note could, could, could help people get a better sense of where it, of where it comes from. So, so yeah, Mina had a lot of interesting things to, to say. I mean, she, also, she, she was also talking about the, the, the usefulness of perhaps if, you, if one is introducing a writer who's not known to to Western audiences, maybe maybe it even makes sense to iron out some of the more idiomatic and more awkward, you know, uh, usages of language and all that. To to to, uh, I was going to say pander, but I will, <laughs> I'll take that back. To uh, make it more accessible to to Western to Western English language uh, audiences. So so there's lots of things that we we touched on. Lots of things that I'd have to think about and negotiate within myself to see what 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 makes sense for this particular for this particular project. But uh, yeah, it's never it's it's never as transition is. I'm finding out uh, that it's never as straightforward as you think. It's never just about the text and translating that. It's, there's there's always this whole context within it. And uh, yeah, so Mina certainly alerted me to to what I was slowly becoming aware of. Finally, I'd like to talk just a little bit about your life in the UK now, um, whether your writing life, your translating life has changed since you moved to the UK, um, and also sort of during the pandemic as well, how that's had an effect on your writing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, li- living in Kathmandu, growing up in Kathmandu, uh, one kind of has the luxury of spending more time, or I have had the luxury of spending more time on, on literature, doing literary things organizing literary events, running literary magazines. And that's purely a consequence of my own socioeconomic situation and the kind of, the kind of work editing that I do on a professional basis. It, it has allowed me to, to you know, carve out significant chunks of time to, to, to write books, to, to, to edit for fun as well, uh, and, to, and to be involved uh, with, with, with uh, writers, poets, and uh, translators, editors in Kathmandu and, and the region, the South Asian region. Living in Nepal is, is very different, obviously, from living in, living in London. Uh, <laughs> I mean, purely in, purely in economic terms, uh, I, can, I simply can't afford to, to be a writer, be a literary writer here on the same level. Uh, whereas I was able to be a freelance editor and writer in Kathmandu. Here I'm a full-time editor and writer. I have a job. 
I, I, I moved to London. I moved back to London about three years ago. And uh, soon after, I, I, I got, you know, I had my first nine-to-five job in, in about 10 years. A big shock to the system, but not as bad as I thought it would be. So once you're, you know, stuck into do, I mean, I do a lot of editing and writing uh, on sustainable development, which is something I'm interested in, but uh, it's not something I want to be doing the whole time. So if I want to do my own uh, literary editing, writing, or translating, I have to I have to carve it out of other parts of the day, which is usually not during the day. <laughs> so it, it would either be I don't work very well at night, so I, I I've been you know waking up earlier and earlier, and uh, we now have a son, a six month old son. Uh, so the last six months have not been very productive. In, other than that. In that, in, in in any kind of literary sense, but uh, in just in the last week before I before I came to Norwich, I uh, proposed to myself that I would wake up an extra hour earlier than my son wakes up, which means waking up at five o'clock, which is very painful for me. It means going to bed at you know around ten. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 really a matter of just squeezing squeezing as as much as you can out of out of a limited limited day while still while still uh, staying sane it's not impossible uh, i guess one just learns how to how to be how to be more more efficient with time you really have to learn how to work in more concentrated bursts uh, and things will just take longer to to get done but if you but if you do it regularly you will get them done. So yeah, I mean, I uh, literature is not everything, even though one likes to think that it is sometimes when you're when you're doing it yourself. So it, it's just a question of managing managing your your priorities and making sure you have time for time for everything, even if it's just little chunks of time across the day. Well, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Rabbi. Thank you for taking the time to take part in this podcast. And um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Norwich and the residency. Thanks very much, Kate. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writer Centre. And you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop-down box on the homepage. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the Support Us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us because it helps other writers to find the podcast. Thanks again, keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.